you can sort of almost state it as a theorem. If you want to have open-ended growth indefinitely, you have to reinvent yourself systematically in some periodic fashion so that you effectively set the clock back to zero and start over again. That's sort of the image. However, built into that mathematics is another terrible consequence. And that is, yes, you can do that, but you have to do it faster and faster. A paradigm shift or a major innovation is only a stopgap measure. It is not a permanent solution. You are condemned like Sisyphus to keep doing it ad infinitum. But then you can make the argument that then we would have to do something like invent something analogous to the internet every eight months. Then every six, I mean, it's completely nuts. So obviously you can't do that. So question is, is that avoidable? Or are we condemned to complete collapse eventually? Cities define the modern world. They characterize the human era and its impacts on our planet. By bringing us together, these social reactors amplify the best in us, our creativity, efficiency, wealth, and communal ethos. But they also amplify our worst, the incidence of social crimes, the span of inequality, our vulnerability to epidemics. And built into the physics of the city is an accelerating cycle of crisis and innovation that now drives our global economy and ecosystems closer to the edge of existential peril. Many economists believe that open-ended growth and technological advances can save us from destruction, but the scaling laws that describe the evolution of the city seem to suggest the opposite, that we are on an ever-faster treadmill and can only jump to even faster treadmills until our unchecked growth precipitates collapse. Are we on a super exponential runway to abundance, or are we trapped in a kind of test of our ability to understand our constraints and steward our limited resources? Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and each week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week's episode is part two of a two-part conversation with Jeffrey West, physicist, distinguished Shannon professor, and former president of the Santa Fe Institute. In part one, we set the stage for a deep, difficult examination of our current complex crises by reviewing some key revelations from his book, Scale, the Universal Laws of Growth, Innovation, Sustainability, and the pace of life in organisms, cities, economies, and companies. In this week's episode, we tackle the question of open-ended growth and whether complex system science offers any insight into the design of a sustainable economy. Note that these episodes were taped before the murder of George Floyd and now seem both strangely out of date and uncannily prophetic. Stay tuned in the weeks to come for conversations more directly touching on race, bias, inequality, polarization, counter-speech, and trauma. And follow us on social media for timely coverage of the science helping guide society toward fairer and saner outcomes. If you value our research and communication efforts, please consider making a recurring monthly donation at santafe.edu slash podcast give 
or join our Applied Complexity Network at santafe.edu slash action. Also, please consider rating and reviewing us at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening. The vast majority of our meaningful social interactions are in what I call four-dimensional space, namely the real space of being able to be near, have up, down, and sideways, so to speak, but also be able to smell you and touch you and feel you. I mean, metaphorically maybe, but to be there with you, you know, and see your, the nuances of what's happening and what's happening around you. And uh, this is the very essence of, and the soul of human interaction. And so we need that. And of course, that is why cities, one reason cities have been so successful is it engenders that. So going to this question that what we need to keep active and in fact to enhance is social interaction. But how do we do it by social distancing? Of course, we've learned how to do it. We, we, we have Zoom and Skype and all the other mechanisms, and they serve a purpose, and, I, and they've done remarkably well. I must say I'm amazed how well they've done. But they are two-dimensional. They're soulless. They're not four-dimensional. And unless we invent, which we may well, invent much more sophisticated versions, we're kind of stuck with having to agglomerate together in physical three-dimensional space and be with one another. And uh, there's nothing more satisfying than having uh, an exciting get-together of a group of people on creating new ideas, having discussions, watching a football game together, watching a film together, going to the theater, having sex together, and so on. There's nothing, I mean, this is what life is. And I do, I don't, I, I speak with no expertise, but I feel that's in our DNA. That is who we are. And so it's very hard for me to see that despite, you know, an aversion at the moment by some to urban living because of the pandemic, that when the new metastable configuration evolves in the next year or two, cities won't gradually go back to the same trajectory they were on. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, there may be, there will be changes. I'm not denying there won't, there certainly will be changes. You know, I mean, there'll be some, maybe some very positive changes. There may be limitations on transport, limitations on, you know, I mean, I, these pictures I saw this morning, I think in the New York Times, pictures of cities where, you know, they're closing roads, and they bring out, uh, you know, the, the restaurants bring more, more tables out onto the sidewalk and into the road. Fantastic. You know that. And of course, actually, in some ways, that increases social connect. That's why you're in the city. You want that. So I must say, I don't, you know, after all, it's kind of weird. I don't live in a big city, but I recognize the criticality of having big cities. And as I said earlier, more importantly, really, perhaps more importantly, is that the future of the planet is completely dependent upon the future of our cities. So you raise a, an interesting point, which is that our social networks now have become somewhat decoupled from geography, that, that the people that you're talking with most frequently are not necessarily the people in your neighborhood. So that, that seems like it adds a complicating dimension to all of this, because if we're, if we're referring to a city as mm -hmm. precipitating within a social network as it, that it engenders, 
we now have what I love this term that historian William Irwin Thompson uses, the noetic polity mm -hmm. rather than the, the geographic polity. And there's like another axis across which all of this is happening that, that seems to complicate coordination at scale in certain ways. Action Network member Casey Climes wanted to ask about how you understand the relationship between the scaling of social networks and the mechanics of cooperation and competition, which seems related, if you'll indulge this, to another question from uh, Moritz Wallowich on information flow and, and how this is connected to, you brought up earlier that you know, these are sort of limited by the ability of a network to distribute information or nutrients to its terminal units, individuals involved. So like I think of the problems of our recent attempts through this digital transformation to scale human social interaction to the size of the planet. And you look at something like Facebook, which seems almost like it's running on waste heat generated by outrage. You know, that it's like there's it is it's actually built on harvesting the dissipation of effort that is created by a faulty networks. And, um, and, you know, you offer, at least with the electrical grid, we came up with a way of, you know, this ACDC solution for this. And, you know, this question of the city as a sort of model organism here is not just about people connecting to each other in the city. It's about people connecting to each other outside of the city. It's people, people connecting across and isolating themselves within affinity groups. So I'm, I'm curious how you see this internet layer affecting the way that the, the city as social reactor actually evolves and how that is fundamentally different from a city of the 19th century. Yeah. Well, cities, of course, have changed, uh, have evolved uh, tremendously from medieval times and earlier, of course, all the way through the 19th century. Big changes in the 19th century because of the Industrial Revolution um, and the big growth of cities. That was the, the beginning, so to speak, of the uh, Anthropocene and the growth of huge urban centers. And uh, through the 20th century, and one of the things that changed of course, was mobility in the cities. And that relates directly to your question, because um, let me just go back a little bit. A city, as I said earlier, is this integration of, on the one hand, information networks, social networks, exchanging ideas, information, and so on. The intertwining and integration of that with the physical networks, because whoever you are, doesn't matter what medium you used, whether you, you, you were back in medieval times and you could only walk, or whether you're in um, the 21st century and you can either get a car or uh, get a, your private plane or um, use your internet, you have to be somewhere. I mean, that's the constraint. Drawing wonderful pictures of networks sort of up there in the cloud Yes, there is. Topologically, that's what they are. There are, you know, there's nodes. Nodes connect via links to other nodes and so on and so forth. And we get these wonderful networks. Yes, but that's a metaphor, actually, for what's going on because every node has to be someplace. You have to be, you know, in your kitchen, in your bathroom, in your office, on the train. You have to be somewhere. It doesn't matter how you're communicating. And that is the hegemony of the infrastructure. 
what it really is is the hegemony of the Newton's law of gravitation. It's probably you have to be on the earth, and that infrastructure has to house you and support you. So it's inevitable that you're, these are intertwined no matter what the stage of evolution of the city is. Now, the change has been, of course, going back to what I said a moment ago, the increased um, flexibility of mobility. That has changed tremendously. It's gone from being purely walking and occasional use of the horse uh, to more use of the horse, to carriages, and ultimately the invention of the automobile. And now, of course, we've relieved ourselves of that with both the aeroplane taking us between cities, between continents, and even more so to the internet, which superficially relieves us of this constraint. But of course, it still doesn't. As I mentioned a moment ago, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter how sophisticated your IT connections are, you got to be somewhere, you know, so that's it. And one of the things that uh, comes out of simple models of trying to put that into mathematics, actually, is going back to something you brought up earlier, that 15% gain that is arising from the positive feedback of social interactions, social networks, either in your local environment or across boundaries, across countries, by whatever means, but there's still social networks that have this positive feedback, that 15% gain is related directly to the 15% savings on infrastructure of a city. So those two, by intertwining the networks mathematically in models, one sees that those two 15% are not independent, that one drives the other and can't be disconnected from the other. That still leaves open the question, to what extent, ultimately, as we develop more sophisticated ways of communication, do we, despite having to be tied to a place, does the place matter less and less? I think that's the issue, is does it matter? And this exercise that we've been going through during the pandemic is an extremely good example of that, of course. We can still be the Santa Fe Institute, even though the place is closed, and still carry on our seminars, and still communicate with one another, and still feel some connection to the collective, so to speak, and the Institute still functions. But does it? That's the question. Does it actually function? Really? When we don't actually see each other, we're not actually at the blackboard together, writing down equations and saying, no, that's obviously wrong. What about this idea? And so on and so forth. Or sitting around in the morning saying, did you see that stupid film last week? Or did you see that football game and say, you watch football? You know, the whole stuff of human interaction is very hard to duplicate. And I talked about that earlier. So I don't know the answer. My, let me tell you my intuition, which is not based on science. It's just based on intuition. My intuition is that, yes, we will become a little freer, but fundamentally very little will change qualitatively. There may be some quantitative changes, but qualitatively, qualitatively, we still need to have institutions, we need to have universities, we need to have offices. I'm, I'm intrigued, by the way, by the announcement of Facebook in particular, since you mentioned it, that people don't have to come to the office anymore. I mean, not just in this interim period, but possibly into the foreseeable future. 
I sincerely doubt that that will happen. I think it might for for a maybe six months, a year, after things become sort of normalized. But I think eventually people will return to being in a place together. However, having said that, the phenomenon of being able to work at home, to have free, more flexible hours, to not be clogged down by the kinds of traffic and mobility problems we have, that will have a positive lasting effect. To what degree, I don't know, but it will. I think that will be. And indeed, it was already beginning to happen, as we know, in a small way prior to it. And indeed, one of the outcomes of a discontinuity in the social fabric that the pandemic has caused, which other previous things have caused, which may not be necessarily negative, like the Industrial Revolution, is that what it does, it speeds up things that were already beginning to happen in some nascent way. And, and I think that's uh, it's a fascinating dynamic. But so it will speed up things that were already happening. Which ones, when the dust settles, become sort of part of the social fabric long term? Hard to say. But I do suspect this idea of working remotely and having flexible hours and living a more flexible life in general will evolve. By the way, one of the things I just was thinking, one of the things I wrote about in my book was I mentioned that uh, in, the, in the late, in, in, after the Second World War, when there was another break, things changed, there was a big boom, all kinds of things that, that were already happening before the war were accelerated, and it was an extraordinary period, I think. And there was great innovation and great technological progress. And one of the things that some uh, what we would now call futurists were thinking about is, my God, what's going to happen to the work week? We won't need to work 40, then 48 hours a week. And uh, what are we going to do? And uh, two people that I quote in the book, one was Sir Charles Dickens, the grandson of the Charles Dickens, but himself an eminent man. And the other was John Maynard Keynes, the great economist. Both suggested that this will be a big crisis, social crisis, and we will have to go to, at most, a 20-hour working week. And the big crisis is, what in the hell are people going to do with all their free time? Which is amazing. Of course, when exactly the opposite, the work week did decrease to 44, then 40, roughly. But it stayed pretty much the same. And in fact, I would argue that people in some ways, especially in the United States, work harder than they ever did in some ways. I mean, people have this um, obsession and compulsion and anxiety to be working outside of the office. And so one of the curious things that I think is going to happen is how we reconcile this expansion of the work week. I mean, informal expansion, not the, it's still technically supposed to be four hours a week, with this extraordinary freedom, which is the kind of thing that Keynes and Dickens thought would happen, that you'd be free and you could work at home and so on, but in a way that is relaxed, you'd be reading lots of books and uh, relaxing for most of your time, and for this few 10 to 20 hours, be doing something that was productive. By the way, the only people they thought would work more than 40 hours, in fact, they thought it might have to go up to over 50 hours, were scientists and technicians. 
because of the increase in technology. <laughs> so it's sort of interesting. So this is also a lesson in why it's very dangerous to speculate too much about the future. It's good to think about it. It's fun. But when you have people like Keynes, who was an extraordinary man, you know, getting it all wrong, you know that you're on dangerous ground trying to think through carefully what uh, might be the case in the future. Like you just said, the way that we measure the work has everything to do with it. You know, you give this beautiful history of the development of concept of fractals in this book. And, you know, specifically talking about the, you know, the measurement of the coastline of Britain. And I think it's just one of those areas where perhaps the way that we consider, the way that we actually model the work week, the ruler is just too long. Mm -hmm. that the more granularity we bring to that investigation, the more we find people answering emails on their phone in bed and it changes yeah. everything. And, and so we're back to, like you said, this is a, an anxiety driven phenomenon that people feel in the U S anyway, feel that they, they have to work all the time. And it seems linked to, you talk about the stress costs of benefiting from a social reactor and the this, this super linear scaling of innovation. So like here we are at, at the meat, finally, the, the question I've been really eager to raise with you, which is a question you don't dare answer in the book, but I, you, I think very wisely raise and leave, leave us all hanging to contemplate, which is how innovation can continue to accelerate in an open-ended way when, as you say, Ideas and innovations they inspire require energy and lots of it. You know, so it's like one thing to talk about whether the 12 lane highways within Los Angeles can accommodate all the traffic. And it's another thing to talk about whether the veins, the pseudopods reaching out from LA into the surrounding areas are going to find enough to eat. Mm -hmm. And so we're finally at the place in your book where you raise the issue of, you know, can we come up with a principled way of understanding a complexity science for sustainability? And part of that issue, to loop this into the issue of anxiety and the need to, you know, the, the way that the momentum of the economy seems to be to push work into smaller and smaller capillaries within one's life. You know, you, you talk about how a typical human being now lives significantly longer than the time between major innovations. So there's the one thing, which is energy capture. Do we actually have the resources on this planet to sustain this growth? And then the other links to the question about balkanization and polarization in these social networks as they scale beyond a sustainable threshold. And this issue of the crisis of growing so fast that we collapse seems to be, again, partly informational and partly metabolic. And I've gotten a little bit ahead of it, but I'd love for you to unpack the finite time singularity <laughs> in, in the growth of cities and, and explain why you think this in particular is up against the assumption of infinite growth and, yeah. and the paradigm that we can just innovate our way out of everything. Yeah. Okay, good. Very good. Yeah, so you're right. I mean, I, the, the last part of my book, or last chapter or so of my book, I uh, got into this and I was taking uh, what was the, uh, this whole structure that had been developed for understanding 
scaling laws and the structure of organisms and then cities and companies and so on uh, and growth and uh, some questions about evolution and so forth and i i sort of took it to in quote its logical conclusion and it led to some very disturbing questions and potentially disturbing conclusions and i sort of left it up in the air because uh, partly i didn't have the answer but i'm happy to speculate about it and partly because it was a little different in character to the rest of the book. So let me just go back to what we were saying. We said earlier that the, in, in biology, we have this sublinear scaling, this economy of scale. The bigger you are, the less you need per capita per cell. And uh, that leads to finite growth. That is, um, organisms typically stop growing after rapid growth in, in, uh, in childhood, and they remain stable till they die, roughly. And that is in contrast to cities in particular, but also would be economies, that they have this superlinear scaling, the bigger you are, the more per capita, more ideas, more innovation, more wealth, blah, 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 per capita, and that that gives rise to open-ended growth when you put it in the same equations, which is great because you have a lovely kind of consistent package. You have these, these networks that have positive feedback in them, social networks giving rise to, because of that positive feedback building on each other, gives rise to superlinear behavior. So the more we get together, the more we interact, the more ideas, and the more we sort of get out of that in terms of socioeconomic activity per capita, and that leads to open-ended growth, all of which we see, and all of which agrees both qualitatively and quantitatively with the data, so it's very nice. However, it has a disturbing consequence. One is, I've already mentioned, one is life gets faster. The bigger you are in those systems driven by, and you feel it, I mean, you feel that in that, you know, viscerally, in terms of social interactions, life gets faster. And so you already have that problem. Okay, so life gets faster. Um, we'll come back to that because it has dire, can have dire consequences. And one of them, by the way, you mentioned, that I mentioned in the book, is that in the past, typically, in, in a human being's lifespan, which of course was less, significantly less than it is now, things didn't change dramatically, typically. And I grew up, in such a situation. I mean, that is the expectation was that life wouldn't be that different, you know, 50, 60 years later, which it is, of course, considerably different. Uh, now, people's lifespan encompasses at least one and probably two major innovations, paradigm shifts. So that has all kinds of social and psychological implications in, in terms of producing sense of anxiety, sense of the floor shifting under your feet, the, and the sense of insecurity generally. So one of the things this open-ended growth gives rise to also is that if you follow the equations through, it gives rise to the possibility of something that is mathematically called a finite time singularity. And a finite time singularity it simply means that the, as, this, as the system grows bigger and bigger, it reaches an infinite size in a finite time, which is ridiculous. You can't be infinitely big in a finite. It means that, you know, that would imply that 10, 20, 50, 100, even 500 years, I don't know, 
the economy will be infinite. The uh, number of AIDS cases will be infinite. The wage, the amount of wages will be obviously crazy. And indeed, that is crazy. And the equations sort of tell you what happens, that, that before you get there, the system stagnates and collapses. Well, we've seen arguments like that before, the famous Malthusian argument. But this is different. This is different because one of the things it says here is, yes, you can avoid that collapse by doing the critics of Malthus said, namely, you didn't take into account that we're going to innovate, that we do innovate. And in fact, that was the criticism of the Club of Rome, of Ehrlich and the population bomb and so on, who made, you know, especially in Ehrlich's case, basically outrageous predictions that were wrong because he just assumed everything would stay the same. And of course it doesn't, and that's the, the hub of the counter-argument, which is not only a powerful one, but is in fact what's happened, is we innovate. We make major paradigm shifts um, that lead to effectively starting the clock all over again. We basically reinvent ourselves. We, the Industrial Revolution being, of course, the major, major one, but, you know, we discover then, then or we discover oil, we invent the automobile, we invent the telephone, we invented IT, we invented the computer. All these things are paradigm shifts, effectively, and they sort of reset the clock. So this reinvention is critical, and um, it, it happens. And it, But according to this theoretical framework, yes, that's the way you avoid collapse. You can sort of almost state it as a theorem. If you want to have open-ended growth indefinitely, you have to reinvent yourself systematically in some periodic fashion so that you effectively set the clock back to zero and start over again. That's sort of the image. However, built into that mathematics is another terrible consequence. And that is, yes, you can do that, but you have to do it faster and faster. So that, yes, you can innovate, but next time you've got to do it even quicker, and the time after that even quicker, in a systematic way. So it's being, it's like being on a, a treadmill that's accelerating and uh, uh, at some stage you've got to jump off the treadmill onto another treadmill that's accelerating even faster and you have to keep jumping faster and faster and so on. And of course, that leads to a socioeconomic heart attack is the idea. And the image that I presented in the book was a Sisyphean image. That is one of Sisyphus, who you remember was, well, you remember who Sisyphus was? He was the, a king who was sort of like Trump, who thought he was infallible, didn't give a shit about anything. He's the, you know, he's the king of the universe and screw everybody else. And the gods punished him, as they will Mr. Trump, by, by <laughs> condemning him to roll this big ball, this big block ball up the mountain to the top and then it would roll down again and he would have to go down and roll it back up again and he had to do that for eternity. So we're like that but we're much worse because Sisyphus was fortunate. The, the rock and the mountain remained the same every time so he had to roll so it was fine. Ours unfortunately every time you get to the top and it rolls down the ball gets bigger and the mountain higher. So you have to roll it up high and you have to do it faster and faster. That's the problem. 
So the idea is that, um, yes, you can avoid collapse by innovation and shifting paradigms, but you have to do it faster and faster. And a paradigm shift or a major innovation is only a stopgap measure. That is, it is not a permanent solution. You are condemned like Sisyphus to keep doing it ad infinitum. But then, then you can make the argument, the kind of reductio ad absurdum argument that, um, of course, then we would have to do something like invent something analogous to the internet eventually, sort of every eight months, then every six. I mean, it's completely nuts. So obviously you can't do that. So question is, is that avoidable? Or are we condemned to complete collapse eventually? Because we're getting close. Because already, you know, we've had to, we went from the computer we went from computer to laptops in, I don't know, 40 years, I don't know, whatever it was. You went from mainframe computers to laptops in 20 years. I don't know, I'm making up these numbers, actually. And then from laptops to IT in maybe 15 years. And it's going to get shorter and shorter. Who knows what the next one? There will be ones. It may be, it may be driverless cars. Well, may have, you know, a paradigm shift. Who in the hell knows? So. I got very despondent after this because it's hard for me to see a way out until I realized that uh, I was confounding something. And I was confounding something that we have all started to do in the last 20 to 30 years, and that is confounding the idea of innovation with technology. When you think of the word innovation, at least I, anyway, and I think most people think of, oh, a new technology, some new widget or gadget, some super-duper iPhone, Alexa, driverless automobile, or some, something, anyway. But you always think of technology these days. But of course, innovation is, fortunately, much broader than that. And innovation, of course, there's been innovations that aren't necessarily technological, um, and they might be cultural. They might be, I mean, you could, I just make this up, you, you could argue that Marxism and communism was a major innovation, was for part of the world, and still plays a crucial role in our, on the planet, actually. But it was an innovation, it was cultural. Pardon for interrupting, but this really links quite strongly to two other pieces from SFI that have one was Louis Betancourt's work on introducing new alleys and streets into a slum, yeah. you know, yeah. to multiply the, the capillaries in there to, yes, to distribute exactly. the resources. That's linked to presentation that Sam Bowles and Wendy Carlin just gave oh, yes. on the return of these mesoscopic piece of the economy that is not the market or the state, but is right. these uh, like neighborhood, a sense of solidarity and community and virtue. And there's a link between the kind of cultural innovation that you're talking about and the ways that it assists in the distribution of resources and the efficiency yeah. of a hypothetical future economy by making it less an issue of a single giant heart pumping into all of these little right. areas and then doing something kind of like the, the octopus nervous system where you have your little smaller pumps throughout it or the stegosaurus brain the ganglion in the hips and anyway that's just 
No, absolutely. So the point is there might be cultural revolutions, potential, potential shifts that need to do this. And of course, one of the, what you want to do with that is to get away from the hegemony of open-ended growth being the only way we can keep society the way it is. So the, so one of the fundamental questions is, can we have the kind of vibrant, high standards of uh, and quality of living uh, that we have uh, with with innovation and new ideas without growth? No one knows the answer to that. Maybe, but I think having going along with that would have to be some kind of social or cultural revolution. And um, and I say that, especially so we use the word social, because in the work that we did, this superlinear behavior, which is sort of underneath it all, all comes from the dynamics of social networks. This, and the question is, is that so much in our DNA that built into social networks is if you took it, you sort of put, took the causal connections, open-ended growth. Is that sort of inevitable? Or can we still do the kinds of things we do and still do it without having this obsession with open-ended growth and sort of have our cake and eat it too? And the two new game changers, the one we've already talked about, and that is we still don't know the long-term effects of the internet and its connectivity and what it does. I'm dubious about that as the origin of a solution, but it will play a part in the solution. But the other, curiously, is um, to do with the election of Donald Trump. And here I'm going way out there. I'll probably be thrown, I'll probably be fired by the Institute after this, is the election of Donald Trump, which in this context gives me hope because it's a very interesting example of something that most people thought could not happen. And that is that up until Donald Trump came on the scene, I think it was taken for granted throughout society, the the complete spectrum of society, that it relied on rational discourse, exposing the truth, we agree on the facts. I mean, of course, there's grayness around all of these, but you know, there's a there's a certain discourse, the rule of law, we obey laws, we have respect for others, we treat people equally and with some sensitivity. Those are sort of the fabric of society and what has been engendered in societies across the world, no matter what their size and origins. Some form of those phenomena are part of what being a human being is, and what being a social human being in a collective is, whatever, whether it's a village, a city, or a state. And suddenly, along comes someone who basically says, actually, you know, you don't have to believe any of that. You can tell lies. You can just ignore the facts. You can treat people like shit, and so on. It's okay. Appealing to what many of us feel is the dark side of a human being, and which we all have, by the way. I mean, we all have put pieces of those in in us. And Donald Trump, in some extraordinary way, was a catalyst for opening up a piece of the collective that is quite dark, 
and quite, and potentially, I believe, quite dangerous and counter to the long forces of, of social progress uh, both across the globe. It's not, a, not, a, not, not necessarily Western or Eastern. I think it's been part of social progress in forming sort of urban, the urban planet. And it happened, and here's what's extraordinary, what's truly extraordinary, is it happened in less than a year. Now, had someone proposed that, had some fancy schmancy social scientist or economist with Nobel Prizes and all the rest proposed that two years earlier, he would have been told, you know, people thought he was a complete idiot. You know, okay, maybe something like that could happen, kind of 1984-ish, yes, but it would take 100 years or 50 years because that's a whole social progress. But it's there. The point is, it's potentially always there, and Trump found the key to open it. I mean, he's a cat. It's not him. It's, it's there. So that's my framework for having hope because you could imagine an anti-Trump could be Jesus Christ, could be Mahatma Gandhi, could be Nelson Mandela, who in the hell knows, Buddha, one of these people that have enormous charisma like Mr. Trump, enormous appeal, that instead of appealing to the forces of evil and darkness, appeals to the forces of good, of humanity, of love, appeals to the forces of love, which is in everybody, just as the forces of evil are, and he or she might have the key to ignite that and get us all to realize that for the collective good, something has to change, and that something is to do with no growth or limited growth and changing our relationship to our environment. So that's my kind of flaky piece of me, <laughs> because I lived in California during the 60s and 70s, and I believed all that stuff. Well, now, if we're going to propose that a similar phase transition in the politically possible could happen in the opposite direction. It seems like it would run, and here again, we're in this, the rat king or the perfect storm or whatever of this yeah. issue, which is that to the extent that scaling, uh, part of scaling is about minimizing the transaction costs in energy and information exchange, then we know that, you know, there was a, a 2014 study outside of SFI, uh, I think it was a Harvard study, said that online fake news travels six times faster yeah. than actual deep, like the, the debunking can occur. Yes. And, you know, you think about this in brains and it's like, yeah, you have different layers, you know, like the Daniel Kahneman thing, there's the reflexive and the instinctive or intuitive. And then there's the kind of thought that you have to sit and chew on and, and analyze. And it would seem that a brain or a society needs both. But I, it seems like the reason that this surprised us that we were able to transition to a, a quote-unquote post-truth society as fast as we were was because post-truth media environments don't they're able to move so much faster up to a point right which is the point at which a society that is coordinated on a post-truth narrative that doesn't empirically align with its actual environment like for example that we can just say we can innovate our way out of this super exponentially and have an infinite economic growth on a, you know with finite resources it's going to outcompete 
truth in the short term because it's it's more frictionless, right? So we're back to, I think, when people start asking through the lens of your work questions about, is it even possible to institute a kind of degrowth paradigm on the planet? And it would seem not because we're cutting against the grain of these economies of scale that provide us the savings that allow for this kind of growth in the first place, right? Yes. No, I, I agree. No, that's what got me despondent about the whole thing is that you know, <laughs> it goes to what I said again and I said earlier, the, the very dynamic that has given us this extraordinary success and led us to this place and um, that we continue to feed and continue to benefit from is also the source of our greatest weakness. And, and it's hard to see a way out. And that's why I shed my scientific hat and went into a, a science fiction-y kind of mode because you need something dramatic that's outside of this framework in order for the system to make a dramatic change. And, um, you know, I hope I'm wrong. I hope it's, uh, this, is, this is not the case. But it's very hard to, uh, at the moment, it is very hard to see. And uh, we feel like lemmings at the moment running over the edge of a cliff. And, and the forces, unfortunately, the forces that are trying to counteract it, even within the system, even those that, you know, that we see in terms of leadership roles in the system, it's hard for them to move out of this. I mean, you're, we're all in it. We all benefit from it. We're part of it. We engender it in some way or another. So it is extremely difficult to see. And by the way, you've reminded me of something else that I didn't say along the way that is related to this. And that is one of the things that is very hard for people to contemplate. And only during the pandemic has it begun to sort of penetrate a little bit into social consciousness is what an exponential means. And I've sort of railed about this in the past, but <laughs> that it's sad that the word exponential, like many words in science, uh, took on a colloquial meaning that only connotes one little bit of it. Namely, exponential has come to mean very fast. In, in the colloquial language, and fine. I mean, the irony is that exponential at the beginning is, can be quite slow, <laughs> and then it becomes dangerously fast much you know, later. But you know, it does, people don't understand that. And what they usually think exponential means, the system is still sort of linear, you know, basically, but it's going just very fast linearly. You know, this has been an argument since Malthus that built into an exponential, is often collapse. You have to intervene in some way to stop it collapsing. Actually, it's not exponential is a borderline case. It's super exponential, which is what we've been doing, which is the real danger. That is something that's even faster than exponential is the real danger, but exponential do for, this, for, for these purposes. And, and I do rail against that because people do not understand. One of the things that I almost was gonna write a short little thing that I was going to try to get published in the New York Times when the pandemic began was that people were using doubling times, which is good. And they were trying to say, look, doubling time, it'll double in two days, be twice as big in five days or whatever. What they should have said is at the beginning, 
There isn't a word for it, unfortunately, but going up by a factor of 10, deciling, I don't know what the word, there isn't a word. I looked it up, there is no word for increasing by factors of 10. The deciling in the pandemic at the beginning was seven days, which means, actually it was about eight days, to be, but about a week, I took it as a week, which means that if it's 100 now, in a week's time, it's 1,000. A week later, it's 10,000. A week after that, it's 100,000. In a month, it's a million, and so on. 10 has much more punch than a shitty little doubling. So I was very annoyed that we're still doing it. And I still, if I write something, I want to write about that. Because people did not realize, and that's exponential growth within, of course, an extremely short time. You have every single person in the country has this bloody thing. So, and that is part of the problem we're facing. And one of the problems that is not appreciated, it is, it was, I must say, despite our very poor uh, beginnings to this, uh, and that was because the president and administration took a dim view of the whole thing and simply was part of this lack of belief and lack of belief in science and truth and so on. Eventually, you know, the country got moving. And remarkably, we have saved huge numbers of lives. I mean, obviously, had no one intervened, if we just got on with our normal business, we'd have bodies lying in the street, basically. So we have done it. And it's been a remarkable achievement. And we should not poo poo that, actually. But what because people in some semi-conscious way sort of got it what that doubling did mean what that exponential did mean it was the first inkling what is would be fantastic is if they could realize that actually forget about pandemics that is the world we live in anyway that's what's happening socioeconomically and in terms of the economy anyway if there's a doubling time just like that and it's going to have the same bloody problem that that pandemic would have had had you not intervened. Everybody would be dead. I mean, actually not everybody. Everybody would have had the disease, I should say. And so it will be, if we don't do something, that everybody will have the disease of collapse if we don't do something in the near future. That's sort of what the conclusion I came to. Mm. So to wrap this, something I talked about with Brian Arthur again was this notion of the notion of how there's a link between an economic model and an organism as a kind of hypothesis generated about an environment. Mm -hmm. And so there's always something that's left out of the model. You know, there's always externalities. So the question that all of this raises for me and you, you gesture towards it with this, this idea of a social or cultural revolution, you know, a, a paradigm shift, is what has to be this, I'm really setting you up for a fall here, I'm sorry. What, the question <laughs> is, what is the current externality? What is not encoded by our cultural, quote unquote, genome here, that is going to make itself obvious and have to be integrated and have to be drawn into our understanding of the world, in order for this to not be us trying to move off of a local optimum and go yeah. downhill? Like, what is the shift in our perception that's going to happen for us to realize that 
endless open growth is not a long-term viability strategy. It seems like it would have to be maybe that we start integrating over longer time spans uh, in our understanding or what? Well, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, uh, if I, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I mean, the fact is, just to make sure we're all on the same page here, you know, the work that I've been involved in with this, it leaves out lots, of, I mean, obviously lots of stuff. And it's a, it's a theory, it's a model. It has the great advantage that it explains a huge amount of data, enormous amount of data on a very coarse-grained scale. And it predicts various things have been measured, which have been uh, confirmed. So that's the way we do science. And what I have been talking about is extrapolating that into the future and saying that, look, the dominant variables in the past are going to continue in the future, such as the structure of our social networks, for example. But, you know, things may change. I don't put in there, and I don't know how one would go around modeling it, things that I did allude to, like the long-term influence of the internet. Now, as I say, I don't think it's going to qualitatively change things, or the intervention of, uh, you know, some social movement that arises that unexpectedly are, um, an asteroid strikes the planet or whatever. You know, there's all kinds of things that uh, might be externalities that are outside of everything I've been talking about. And the purpose of doing this kind of research is, of course, A, to get a deep mechanistic understanding of the way the world appears. Why is it the way it is? Why are things the way they are? Uh, in order for us to avoid problems and to mitigate present problems in the future and to provide a framework and point of departure for thinking about planning for the future. That's the way science works, I think, in, term, in these areas. It's very different, by the way, than the, cons the kind of science I spent much of my career doing which was not coarse-grained, was exactly the opposite, very highly fine-grained, where, you know, you predict things to, in some cases, many decimal points, and you make very precise predictions of very precise phenomena. Here we're making coarse-grained predictions of imprecise phenomena. And uh, that's the challenge. But the one thing, one thing that it has... The two th well, two things uh, I want to re-emphasize are very important. One is it agrees with enormous amounts of data and tested in certain various situations, which it agrees with. And most importantly, it's analytic and it's quantitative. And I think that's important. So I didn't really answer the question because I don't know. <laughs> because that's like, you know, the nearest I came to it, was my um, fantasy about yeah. you know, the anti-Trump. But, you know, that's going off. That's not being a scientist. That's just me reverting to something I may like to think I like to be. <laughs> Fantasize. I don't do that much. I tend to stay very close to the science. Yes, no, this, this whole book, it's hilarious how much shade you throw on biologists for not being as rigorous as you would like. So, <laughs> yes, yeah. so, no, it's, it's funny. By the way, I wrote that book with the intention of writing a, quote, popular book that would have no mathematics, 
but would try not to bullshit, would really try to explain everything as best I could in English. You know, that was the idea, which was very hard. And I, I think in some places I felt quite happy and I felt I was successful, but in other places I'm sure I failed and left things just as obscure. But the point is that I believe passionately in science and in the scientific methodology. And it's the most powerful way of thinking about the universe that man has invented. It has huge areas where it doesn't apply, probably, that relates to this, actually. You know, what you might call a spiritual life, what you might call our, you know, aspects of irrationality and so forth. But, you know, and that, that, those may play a crucial role in saving us. Yeah, so there are two things that we didn't get to in this conversation, and I hope that we can, we can get you back soon sure. to get into these other two things, one of which is the detail that you get into in the afterward about the kind of science that SFI practices oh, and, and how, it, how we hold that in contrast yes. to the kind of science that Chris Anderson famously championed yeah. and celebrated with respect <laughs> to model-free, theory-free yeah. machine learning. The other is about the quest for immortality, which is related sure. to finite time singularities and, and open growth, but links to this beautiful passage that you have about how for an animal of this size, we're consuming about 2,000 food calories a day, <laughs> uh, 90 watts, but we're actually burning 11,000 watts yeah. because we're plugged into these cities. So uh, what is a human being now? Anyway, I know that you've no, got to go. Discuss those. So we're, yeah. we're back and I love chatting with you, uh, Michael. I appreciate it and your patience and tolerance. But it was good fun. Uh, likewise. <laughs> good fun. Good fun. So enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you. Thank um, you, Jeffrey. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.